All right, everybody can find their seats. We will get started. Good morning, and it seems like everybody's starting to get ready for the holidays, I'm sure, in your own homes. Some of you probably put out your Christmas tree like a month ago, shame on you, and some waited till Thanksgiving like you're supposed to, but uh, we got things going. We are starting a three-week series today in Sunday School on Advent, and it was kind of a loose theme. Each of the teachers are kind of doing their own thing, so I thought I would start out then about just talking about what is Advent. I was, uh, I was saved in a charismatic church from a Roman Catholic background, and so for a while in my, in my own mind, a formalism, like a structure to the service, the liturgy, a liturgical calendar, were kind of formal ways of avoiding, you know, genuine Christianity. Um, but I've come to really appreciate those things even more, especially in my military move, sometimes I go to a place where you don't have a very good church. I'm not even sure the chaplain is a Christian sometimes. And that's when I really appreciate some kind of a liturgical structure. And so, and I'm sure we have lots of different opinions and views on that stuff here. Um, you know, there would be some people I know that would be horrified by having a Christmas tree, uh, you know, worship, worshiping a pagan tree in your, in your service. Um, Others go all in, right? And uh, maybe, at least we don't do the Santas and reindeer here in the service like some churches. Um, and there's all sorts of opinions about what, you, people say, what is the meaning of Christmas? Well, you know, on one hand, we don't have some biblical mandate to celebrate the birth of Christ in December, because it kind of doesn't make sense. Um, we have some history, and I don't know what's true, like, did we adopt this from some pagan culture or not? I don't know. I think we could make the argument that it's an issue of liberty, right? If, if the Jews could, could, Jewish Christians could, could eat meat sacrificed to idols, I imagine we could make the argument that we can adopt traditions and, um, and cultures in a way that now turns it to the gospel. Leave it to you and your individual hearts and, and your families of how to do that. I think the biggest thing I would say is I, I just find it to be an opportunity. You know, we still have a couple vestiges of Christianity in our culture Christmas and Easter being the main ones. And so, you know, if Christmas carols are, are playing in the, in the shopping malls and maybe your neighbors have certain traditions they've, they've held over, they don't understand the symbolism involved, or maybe they would even come to church, right? Some people come to church once or twice a year, and this is the chance. So I don't, I don't do a deep dive on defending anything. I just see it as an opportunity. And so I kind of want to approach today, not any really deep theology, but what are some of the big Christmas themes that we, that we can see and that are represented as we do the Advent candles each week? They're little trigger words that you might be able to, to jump off of and advance your neighbor's knowledge of Jesus, maybe even get to the gospel itself. And so that's kind of how I want to approach this. And we always see, need to remind ourselves at all times that our neighbors, our unbelieving neighbors, look at Christmas and even, even the broad coming of Christ in a different way than we do. They don't understand the particulars in the big story. So that's what I kind of want to help with today. So if, if you do a birthday cake for Jesus or not in your house, uh, however you celebrate, I just want to offer a, a bigger picture. And maybe this is good for our own hearts, that we, we can kind of dive deep and focus on maybe just the nativity of Jesus and maybe blow that out of proportion in some way. Um, so we'll talk about that. Scott, do you mind opening us up in prayer?
Amen. So if you were here last week, you know that we started, uh, there's a four-week Advent calendar, um, traditionally. And I went online, I was like, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to do like a history lesson. What is Advent? Because I don't know what it is. So I decided not to go that way. But jumping online, I'm like, well, what are, what are the each weeks of Advent? And there's, I probably found five or six of them. So I don't know what the original was. I don't know what the real one is. So I, I'm going to kind of use the one that we're using in our services for uh, hope, peace, joy, and love. I know the next two weeks, Rick and Emmanuel are going to concentrate on some of the Old Testament prophecies that are fulfilled in Jesus' coming. So I'm going to look a little more taking it from that and going forward. So what is Advent? Advent means coming. That's all it is. So we often use the word Advent to talk about Jesus' first coming. And when we talk about the second coming, we use the word coming. But you could say first Advent, second Advent, first coming, second coming, whatever. So when we have the Old Testament, and that's what we'll look at the next two weeks a lot, in a little bit today, we have these prophecies of God needing to fix something that's wrong in the world, right? The people lived in darkness, and some light needs to come. That's why we light the candles. But from the shadowy Old Testament looking forward, they don't quite understand what that means. Obviously, they, were, they misunderstood things about what well, this means, the, you know, the Jewish nation is going to be saved from the Romans or whatever. But God, somehow God's going to fix the wrongs. And there's even, even more precise hints about this Messiah, which is the word for Christ, is going to come. He's going to do it through some Messiah. But it's just kind of like a singular event. And then in history forward, like in glory, looking back from heaven, we're going to be able to say, hey, there was something wrong in the world, and God sent Jesus and fixed it. And here we are. From that, from that side view, it's just... It's just kind of like a singular event. So my, my family is really big watching the World Cup right now. We wait four years for this, and then we go all in. I've taken the last two weeks off to watch all the matches. I know we're crazy. For some of you, it's baseball or basketball. Like you look forward to a season or a playoff series, and you think, oh, this team is doing great. They're ready to go, and you're going to know afterwards who did it, like who won, who destroyed their enemies. But when you're in the midst of it, it's chaos. It's not a singular event. Like, there's four of these a day going on right now. So, like, oh, they did not as well as they thought. How are they going to do? And once you're in the middle of the story, you start to see it's a little more complex. And, of course, we know the big picture of this is Jesus does come, but then he returns. Right? And that's his first coming. That's the first advent. Maybe I should have moved this over a bit. And then we know he's going to come again. Right? That's the second coming, the second advent, and usher us in glory. And then we have, so we have this, this time now that we often talk about the already not yet. That's where we live, right? We're between the two comings. And, and so what happens is we, we think about prophecies. We think about what God is doing in the big picture in the world. And right now, it can feel a little chaotic. God said he was going to send a Savior, he was going to fix this mess. And it doesn't always feel like it's fixed. And we continue to have promises for the future, for the second coming. So I want to look at today, I want to make sure that we, we look at the advent, the coming of Christ at Christmas, in a, in, a, in a context, in the big picture. It's okay to focus on certain events. I love that about the liturgical calendar. But our neighbors don't understand this. And sometimes we get confused. Our faith, our doubts come in. Our faith is tested because it doesn't seem like the God is being honest. He doesn't know what he's doing. 
And so there are, I think there are two errors we can make. We can divorce Jesus' coming as a baby in the incarnation from what he did, his death, burial, resurrection, his full life and work in his first coming. In other words, we could divorce Christmas from Easter. And we can't do that in our theology, in our understanding. The second thing we do is we can end up divorcing the first coming from the second coming. We can presume too much of what God promised to do in this coming. We thought it would have been taken care of. Much like the, his disciples thought we were going to be free from the Romans or for whatever oppressors, right? They just didn't quite understand the big picture because we didn't have all of Revelation yet. Hebrews 9 says this, And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, first coming, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who eagerly wait for him. So right there, it's just a hint. We know there are two different purposes in the comings of Christ. Jesus did something in the first coming that he's not going to do the second time. There's a different emphasis. There's different work that's going to be done. He dealt with sin on the first one. He went to the cross. He dealt with sin. But that's not what he's going to do. Now he's going to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. There, the, the book of Hebrews is all about sustaining, continuing, persevering to the end. The death and resurrection of Christ was not the end of the story. It wasn't it. You, you, you could understand why someone would think that. This triumph, Jesus is going to go. He's raised from the dead. That's it. And here we are, 2,000 years later, waiting. What is going on? Was that really true? So because Jesus has died and risen again, he has provided a sacrifice, and we, we're told to take that gospel to the ends of the ages. So very much we emphasize the love, the mercy, the grace of God. Hebrews 4 has this awesome quotation of David and talking about don't let your hearts be hardened. Run to Christ and stay there because it's still called today. While you wake up and you have life in your body, you have breath in you, you have the opportunity to repent and believe, come to Jesus. And so the emphasis goes out to the world very much a gracious, a loving gospel. And people like those things, right? They like to talk about love. But at the same time, we need to emphasize judgment. There's, there's going to be a time when today doesn't exist. It's going to be yesterday. And it's going to be too late. Any one of us could drive home from church today, get in a crash, and die. And that could be it. We don't know what a day is going to bring forth. Or... Jesus could come again, right? He came on a donkey. He came as a, as a humble servant and given himself as a life for the ransom of many. Next time he's coming on a white stallion with a sword in his hand. When, when, we, when we are calling people Jesus, come to Jesus, it's not like from a place of neutrality, make your life a little better, you know, enjoy things a little more. You are fleeing the wrath to come. You are running to Jesus away from the mountains falling on you. The rocks are going to bury you. God will have his vengeance on his enemies. Now, it's, it's a matter of wisdom. How do you share that with your neighbor? <laughs> They're going to run away from you, right? They're, you pray for those moments. You pray for the Spirit. When is the moment to emphasize these things? 
But if we leave them in an ignorance that Jesus is just a nice cuddly baby in a manger, um, he's not a threat, we don't want to talk about what he does when he grows up to be a man, and especially when he goes to a, a cross and death and blood and sin, we, we want to deal with this nice little nativity scene, and oh, I can feel good, and there's some nice stories in there, this this young couple had a, a baby so young, and they walked miles and miles and avoided hair. Like, if we just stop with that story, and that's what a lot of your neighbors think. That's what they think about Jesus. He's just kind of this cute little mythical story. Or maybe a little further, he's a man who taught good things and he lived a good life. We can't leave our neighbors in that ignorance, or it's to their peril. In the first coming, the new covenant was inaugurated. This is my new covenant in my blood. The new covenant is, is inaugurated, but it's not consummated. <laughs> we don't see all of Israel being saved. We don't see all of the children of Abraham coming and Jesus being the hope to the Gentiles. All these promises we have are still to happen, even though the new covenant is here, right? We're already here, but it's not all the way here, right? Jesus is already king. Right? We say that he's our king. He reigns. We, we emphasize the sovereignty of God. He is king. He reigns. He rules. He does whatever he pleases. But we look around. I don't see that. I don't see that at my work, in my family. I don't, I don't have harmony and peace and order. Things don't make sense. I don't see God winning in certain areas of my life. Hebrews 10 says this. When Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin... He sat down at the right hand of God. There he is. Jesus is raised. He's in glory. Ephesians 1 tells us he's up there. and He's going to bring us to him. We're actually seated with him in the heavy places right now. And yet, what does it go on to say? He's sitting there, resting in a sense from some kind of work. He's finished some kind of work, so he's resting. He's sitting down, but he's waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. So I don't understand, Jesus, you've, you've raised, you're on the throne, you're seated there, you're done doing some kind of a work, and yet you're still waiting. There's still something about Christ's reign that isn't completed, it's not consummated yet. And that's that already, not yet. Colossians 2 has a couple things there. Verse 13, it says, God has forgiven us all our trespasses, and yet we know that Jesus teaches us to pray daily for forgiveness. Did forgiveness happen at the cross? Did it happen when I was justified and came to faith? Why am I still asking for forgiveness? In verse 15 of Colossians 2, God disarmed, shamed, and triumphed over the rulers and authorities. And yet, verse 15 says, we're still waiting for those enemies to be destroyed. And of course, it's not until Revelation 20 that Satan is thrown into the lake of fire. Again, it's that already not yet. Somehow, Christ's enemies have been defeated. And yet they're not defeated yet. So we remember, and, and Tim talks about this a lot with, with the Lord's Supper. It's always these three looks, right? We're looking past, present, and future. We, we remember what Jesus has done. He has, we talk about his work being finished, right? He sat down. It's done. It's complete. And yet, none of that matters. None of the... None of the finished work of Christ is efficacious. It, it doesn't work if he doesn't come again. He's not done yet. If we find out that God was in error, 
or he's lying to us. Everything we trust and everything we believe in is for naught. We always have a, a look back and remembering and thankful to God for what he has accomplished and we're not doing it ourselves. We're leaning on Christ and yet we at the same time are always looking forward. God, please, you know, fulfill your promises. Come again. Bring us home. It's, Jesus is going to come a second time to save those who wait for him. He hasn't done it yet. We're saved in a sense, but we're not fully saved yet. Salvation includes all the way to glory. We need the whole story to play out, or our faith is in vain. We don't just look back on a story. We don't just get some encouragement from what Jesus has done. We don't just sit back and, well, Jesus is done it all. I'm good. No, there's this persevering, continue to trusting all the way to the end. Someone summarized it this way. I heard this early on in my Christian life. So God has already dealt with the penalty of sin, right? In the cross, the penalty is done. By the power of the Holy Spirit, sanctifying work in our lives, he's, he's dealing with the power of that sin in our lives as we, we struggle against sin and we, we lean on Christ. We find these small levels of victory, but never what we want. One day he'll remove the actual presence of sin. So the, power, the, present, the penalty of sin, the power of sin, and the presence of sin is Christ's full work. So, as a Christian, I just want to encourage you. If you're despair, in despair, Christmas can be a hard time for some families, right? It's not all joy. It can be a tough time. If, you, if, you're, in, you know, if you're discouraged because you're not living your best life now, good. It's not meant to be your best life. Philippians 1, he who began a good work and you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. That day is the second coming, the second advent. Same thing as your neighbors struggle, like, I don't understand. You said God fixes things. You said this awesome guy, Jesus, is a savior, and he'll come and fix all my problems, and I don't understand. And somehow over your conversations, your relationship with this person, they need to get this big picture. Keep believing. Keep trusting. All right, and let's keep teaching. It's going late. All right, so I don't know if you guys can see this. So what, why, do we, why do we light candles? There's at least four things I could think of. What does light symbolize in the scriptures? How does that teach us about the uh, hope, peace, joy, and love? The first thing is that light paints a contrast. It, there's, there's these real contrasting words in scripture. Life, death, darkness, light. Matthew 4, in leaving Nazareth, Jesus went and lived in Capernaum so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. Jesus brings a change to reality. <laughs> without Jesus coming, without his coming into the world, the world is just dark. And it's death. And the sad thing is, is we're blind and we don't even know it. We don't even realize that we're in need of light, that we're in need of some change. We need some external entrance into the status quo. And that's what Jesus was. Originally and obviously in each of our lives as we come to Christ. The world is dark otherwise. So you, you always need a contrast. It's like that mercy and grace means nothing if you don't understand judgment. It's kind of meaningless words. The second thing is, and this is the common understanding of light, it, that manifests reality. First John, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes. We've seen him. He's appeared. Which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest. As at one point, Jesus was hidden. 
but now he's being manifested onto the scene, made manifest, and we have seen it, and we testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father was made manifest to us. And so, you know, if you, if you get up in the middle of the night, you flick on a light, not because it, it creates, it doesn't create that footstool in your way, right, or the edge of the bed, you're gonna knock, it just reveals it to us. Light reflects off and, oh, we can see reality. I remember as a boy, we lived in this kind of a dark, those old heavy curtains, you probably remember, and these shaggy carpets, and I remember it was a kind of a dark room, but the sunlight would come in, I would love to lay there because it was warm, but I could see all the dust particles. As a boy, it's like, the sun creates dust. How cool is that? <laughs> no, it's just, that that's the only thing I could see, right? It revealed the truth. So it doesn't, it doesn't create reality so much as it reveals what is true. Number three, on the other hand, <laughs> the light of Christ also is a light that creates life. John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The life was the light of men. You cannot divorce light and life when it comes to Jesus. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness had not overcome it. So in this sense, I think we can look at the light of Jesus in the sense like sun rays. They don't just, it's not like a light switch that just turns on, but you know, plants and trees and flowers, they actually grow. There's a chemical reaction. That, that there's something going on in that sunlight that actually gives life. And that's how it is with Jesus. He doesn't just come on and turn on the switch, and now we're like zombies watching something happen. We start to be changed. We're given life. And, and now we can see where there's manifested reality, but now we get to participate in it. And we're becoming part of his reality. And the fourth thing is that light represents moral purity. Again, 1 John. This is a message we've heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. And so having seen the light, having been given life from that light, there's an expectation such a person would now walk in that light. As you walk in that light and I walk in the light, we end up being in fellowship with one another. We're both going to Jesus, and so we're naturally getting closer, and so our unity is built on, on a reality, on a goodness. It's, it's all around Jesus. It's not some false unity that you and I have created away from Jesus. We're all moving together with Jesus and walking in that light. Okay, so now what I want to do is, I've taken the four themes and I kind of want to look at those in light of, I guess that's a bad word to use, in light of the fact that oh, I haven't drawn my grid up here. So we have, we have the coming of Christ in the past. What we normally emphasize when we're doing the Advent candles. And then we, I want to look at those four themes in the present, in the here and now, while we're in the midst of these two comings, and it's not making sense. What are these four things? Hope, joy, peace, love do for us now? And then how much do they help us look forward and trust in Christ for the second coming? So I think we'll get through it all in the time. But I'm putting verses there for all of you. So let's look at each of those. So Matthew 4, I already read to you, fulfills Isaiah 9, uh, which I think was actually read to us in the service last week. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of darkness, on them a light has shone. Again, Jesus is coming into the world the first time 
is going to bring this light into darkness. Well, when it comes to hope, I didn't think I could really divide present and future. It doesn't really make sense. We'll read Romans 8 later why that doesn't make sense. You can't really hope for something that's already here. So I've kind of combined those two in the grid there. Here's part of Romans 8. For I consider that the sufferings of the present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. We are, again, glory is going to be revealed to us. It's light. We ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grow inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with, with him, uh, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And so right now, in this here and now, we're called to hope. We're looking to the future. We, we have a hope. It's not an empty hope. It's not a hope we're just, well, you know, I hope they win this year. It's, it's a hope that's grounded in the promises of God, in the very character of God himself. And so while we live in hope, we, we wait for it patiently. There's, there's a calmness about us. There, there's a belief that God is going to do what he has promised. And, and that's, what, that's the definition of hope. And what Romans 8 teaches us is our, our hope and what God says about the future is based on what he's already done. He says, look at what have I done for you. I gave you my son. How would I stop there? How, if I have all these blessings, if there's this hope of eternity, of, of the consummation of all things, getting rid of the presence of sin, and I've already given you the most precious thing, how would I not also give you all things? So we're not, we're not just, it's not a faint wish. Based on what God has already done, has already demonstrated his love for you, you, you can have hope. That's why we're always turning back. We're always remembering. So the spirit of the age is, I want this, and this sounds really good, and a good God would do this, so my hope is all built in something that feeds me and gives me what I want. No, God is saying, look what I've done. Listen and believe what I've promised to you about the future, and that's where you put your hope. So some people say, when you pray, pray the promises of God. <laughs> God, you promised this, so I'm praying. I'm praying this back at you. I'm relying on you, because our hope completely relies on the character of God at this point. If, if he's a malicious God, if he's not, you know, if he doesn't endure to the end, we have no hope. We have no hope. There's, there's nothing other than our hope in God himself. So the second candle, uh, I think that's what we're going to be doing today in the service, is peace. Um, I don't know what verse they're going to be reading, but Luke 1 would be one that you could read. The tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. So somehow this shining of light, of sunlight specifically, I like that, brings us into a way of peace. There's something about our experience, our life experience, it's peace comes with that light. Luke 19, which is the, the Palm Sunday when Jesus comes in, so still part of his first coming, but we're talking about the end of his life, obviously, now. As he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road, and he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives. The whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that he had seen, 
for they had seen. Again, this, they've seen these works. It's been revealed to them. It's been manifest to them. They didn't quite understand all who Jesus was, but somehow the, the answers of God, the hope of God is being revealed in this man, Jesus, saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. So he's wailing over Jerusalem. He, the, the light has come, as John 1 says, he was here, he's among us, and his own didn't receive him, right? But to who did receive him, he gave them the right to become children of God. So he's come to the Jews, and by and large, the Jews reject him. They didn't see him. They didn't accept that he was the Messiah. They couldn't see it. And because of that, they are kept from peace. Hidden from his eyes. Well, going on to the present, Romans 3. So this is a, I take Romans 3 as a kind of a generic, it, it, you know, Paul takes all these different psalms and pieces them together and says, basically, this is the state of natural man. <laughs> this is why you need a savior. He goes through this litany of descriptions. It's, it's a continuous list. The way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So, so one of the descriptions of a natural man is they don't see God and they don't fear him. So there's no fear of God. And you would think that would make a life of peace, right? What I, can't, what I don't see can't hurt me kind of a thing, right? I, I'm at peace because I, I don't know all the problems going out there. I'm just going to hunker down, concentrate my life. I'm just going to, you know, not worry about reality out there. That's not what Paul says. He says, without the fear of God before in your eyes, you don't know the way of peace. The path to peace, the path to the way of peace is through knowing God and even knowing the fear of God. Philippians 4, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And what? And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Uh, now we're in the present, right? Think about these things in the present. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. That's that revelation, that manifestation. Practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. And so it's not just a looking back. It's, it's, it's an ongoing leaning on, wrestling with, praying for, dwelling, having your mind meditate on certain truths of God. And God promises that peace comes to you through that. One phrase is the peace of God, and in the other phrase it's the God of peace, because of our peace is always found in a person, right? Not just a belief system. So even in the here and now, and, and a lot of our community groups a few years ago looked at that Dane Ortland book. Uh, what was the name of it again? What was it? Gentle and Lowly. And one thing he's emphasizing there is, let's not just look at the past work of Christ. Let's, what does Jesus mean to us in the here and now? This side of the cross, but also this side of heaven. We have a relationship. We have promises, ongoing relationship uh, with Christ. I've already mentioned Revelation 20 about the future and the need for peace. So think about what is peace. It's at this basic level, it's the ceasing of hostilities, right? There's no more enmity. Ephesians 2 talks about the, the enmity between Jews and Gentiles. It's been removed by the cross. But of course, the Jewish view of peace was shalom. It was a wholeness. It was, it was a whole enjoyment and fulfilling of life. Things operating the way they ought to be. In 1 Corinthians 15, then comes the end. 
So we have the future. We're still waiting on this part. Then comes the end when Jesus delivers the kingdom of God to the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. So there's, some, there's more work to be done. The work of salvation in one sense, of redemption, of what, what was accomplished on the cross is finished. It's a finished work. And yet, the, the salvation that Hebrews 9 talks about, saving those who eagerly wait for him, is not yet done. There's still work to be done. There's still enemies to be defeated. All right, joy. Luke 2 says, And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. The fact that they're at night, I think, probably just <laughs> set it up, right? It's, you could just imagine 2,000 years ago, the middle, is, it was pitch black. It was not a Vegas night. It was dark. You could see a billion stars up there. But it was dark, and it was cold. An angel of the Lord appeared to them. And the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. Yeah, I, w I would think so. And the angel said to them, Fear not, <laughs> for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. So it's not just good news of some intellectual message. It's good news of great joy. This is news that ought to make you excited <laughs> and fill you with tremendous joy it, and it should dispel fear your initial reaction is going to be fear but once you understand who the savior is christ the lord you will be full of great joy for the present i'll go back to philippians 4 again rejoice in the lord always again i will say rejoice have joy rejoice let your reasonableness be known to, to everyone the lord is at hand James 5 talks about this too. There's, it, we're not, we don't see Jesus next to us by sight, right? He, he's gone back into heaven. In, in John 14 to 17, he talks about, I'm going to be with you a little while, but then I'm going to leave, and you're going to be scared. I'm telling you not to scare. You continue to have hope. Believe in what I've said. But, but we know Jesus is here. He's, he's present. He's immediate. He's accessible to us. But it's, now it's the eyes of faith. But as we, as we see Jesus, as it were, through the eyes of faith, as we know that he's there because we believe what he said, he is at hand, then we, have, we can have great joy. That, that's, the, that's what Paul says in Philippians 4. You can rejoice in the Lord always because the Lord is at hand. He's here. He's near you. Maybe you don't feel that. <laughs> you see the clouds of, of whatever turmoil you're going through, but the sun is there. You just can't see it. You know, lift your eyes up. See the Savior. Trust in what he said. You know, to the future. John 16. A little while and you will, not, and you will see me no longer. Again, a little while and you will see me. So mo some of his disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us? A little while and you will not see me. Again, a little while and you will see me. And because I'm going to the Father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he's talking about. So obviously in, in, in the disciples, in the Garden of Gethsemane, they're right here, right? They're between here. He's physically with them, right there. They can touch him, look upon him with their hands, right? He's going to leave them, and yet he's not going to leave them. He, they don't understand. You're going to see me, and then, of course, he even had a resurrection. I guess I could put a little arrow. He came back, right, real quick, and they had some fish on the beach, and they went, went back again. So their context is a little different from ours, 
but I think it, it would be fair to extrapolate to us. We've seen Jesus. We have the stories. We, we know what has happened. He was physically here, and yet, in the same way, just like the disciples, we're kind of like, he's come for a little while, but he's coming again. I think we can apply it to, to our position in history as well. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, so he said, is this what you're asking yourselves, what I mean by saying a little while and you'll not see me again, a little while and you'll see me? Sorry, there's a lot of repetition there. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. When Jesus appears to be not on the throne, when it appears that everything we Christians believe is just wrong, we got it wrong, you know, society is progressing, our philosophy is progressing, we're getting better as a society, we understand things better than those ignorant old Christians did, those religious people, the world rejoices. We weep and lament because we, we want to be with Jesus. <laughs> yes, we believe you, Jesus, but I, I just want to be with you. There's a weeping and lamenting of sorts. You will be sorrow, but your sorrow will turn to joy. The tables are going to turn. <laughs> when Jesus comes back, we're going to be proven right. <laughs> we already know the end of the story. The world doesn't believe it, but he's going to come again. He's, he's going to come and destroy his enemies, and he's going to bring us home. He's, he's preparing a place for us. Believe it. Hope in it. Persevere in that, and that ought to bring you great joy. The joy that surpasses understanding that Paul talked about. It doesn't, your neighbors ought to see that you live in this reality of hoping for a future, and your joy doesn't make any sense. And God forbid that God would remove us from those trials and that suffering. What a sober prayer that is. God, let me experience the travails of life just like my neighbor. Because I want them to see me persevere through this and find faith not to be destroyed. Don't pray for comfort. Don't pray to be some victorious life that your neighbors don't experience. They won't understand it. You need to walk through them. You need to be a continuing voice in the wilderness to them. Don't try to escape all those things. Try to be faithful through those things. I don't even know what I'm asking for here. God's going to hit me with something now. So our joy depends on seeing Jesus. <laughs> our joy is wrapped up in Jesus. We, he needs to come back. Christianity is meaningless if the resurrection isn't true. It's meaningless if Jesus doesn't come back. It's not about some moral life. It's not about putting things in order or making things right. Our joy completely depends on Jesus himself and seeing him again. And on to love. So our fourth candle. 1 John 4. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that Jesus sent his only son into the world so we might live through him. So we look for the love of God. What is the love of God? What does that look like? It looks like Jesus. This, Jesus coming into the world, that demonstrates the love of God. We can have no doubt, and specifically 1 John 3, by this we know love that he laid down his life for us. So God saw darkness. We needed an answer, and he provided it in Jesus. And very specifically, he provided it in the work on the cross. That's a demonstration of God's love. There's no competition between God's wrath and love. He demonstrates his love by pouring out his wrath on our Savior in the present, then we, each of those verses, you could go on into the present. First John 4, 11, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. So we've, we've seen this example. We, we've been manifested. Our, we've been created life, and we need to walk in that light. And one thing that that means is 
we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. In chapter 3, he talks about if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother need and closes his heart to him, the love of God is not in him. It makes no sense. If you see your brother and sister in need and you have the ability to help them, for you to, to say no to that means you don't understand the love of God. I don't need to berate you and make you feel guilty and shame that you're not doing enough for the kingdom. I need to preach the love of God to you. <laughs> Think about what God has done for you. That's a message for your neighbor and for your own hearts. That should turn yourself inside out to display the love of God. No one has ever seen, seen God. If we love one another, they see God. That's how they see, they see the love of God. That's how they see God. They see us practicing deeds of love. An invisible God is seen through invisible loving actions. And last, for the future, 1 Corinthians 13. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, this future, we're waiting for the perfect, for the completion. The perfect isn't here yet. When the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish things. For now, we see in a mirror dimly. So we, we talk about the shadows of the Old Testament. So, you know, related to everything forward, it was a shadow. It was a mystery. Things weren't as clear. But even now, things aren't fully clear. We still have more clarity to come. We still, even now, even with the New Testament scriptures, with all that we know, we know thousand times more than Abraham and Moses ever knew. We are such beneficiaries. But even now, in light of what we're going to know, it's still a mirror dimly. Now we see in a mirror dimly, but then we're going to see him face to face, right? He's going to come again. We're going to see him again in his body. He still has a body. It's, it's not going to be faith anymore and hope. He's there. He's going to be there in the flesh with us. That's our joy. That's our hope. Now I know in part, then I shall be fully known, even as I've been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. Because <laughs> you won't have faith anymore. You won't have hope anymore. There's no looking to the future anymore. It's going to be an ever-present reality. It's, it's, I guess it's going to be a today again, in a, in a different sense. It's going to be the future. Well, that's what I have prepared. So I don't have any specific questions, but we do have a couple minutes. Any thoughts? And wait for the mic if you do. Any other verses? Um, I don't know. Any traditions you want to share with the rest of us that would help us? Any thoughts? We don't have to have any comments, but. Wow. It is the end then. <laughs> All right. I'm surprised. I'll take that. So. Let us not waste the opportunity of this season. Your, your neighbors are putting up lights. It could be as simple as walking down, they're putting up lights in their yard. Hey, what are you doing there? <laughs> Play the fool. Well, why do you put lights up? What does that mean? I don't know. Get creative. Why, why do you do that? Like, oh, that was your family tradition. Oh, what else? What other traditions did you have? You know, maybe it's a chance to have them in your home for the first time. Ha have these conversations. If people are excited about this time of year. They don't understand what the real joy is. But they're excited. It's different. It's a, you know, it's a family time. There's, there's little hooks 
that we have, these little opportunities. Pray for the wisdom. Pray for the Spirit to give you the courage and the strength to have these, these uh, conversations. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for Christmas. We thank you that Jesus came into the world. Help us to not only focus on um, the baby in the manger, the incarnation, how important that is, for a, a life that was lived well, lived perfectly on my behalf, and a sacrifice um, of blood that completes it, that is finished and done, and I can't add to it. Help me now in the here and now to, to trust, to trust everything that I read in the Bible, that all of that happened just as you said. Help me trust that Jesus is here. He is at hand. He is immediately accessible to me, and that the Spirit has been left with me to continue to give me peace and joy and courage and strength, conviction of sin. Help us in the here and now to not rest in some wrong way on the sacrifice of Christ, but to want to walk in the light, to love our neighbor, to give to those in need. Help us not to run away from suffering. Help us to be faithful in that suffering. Help us to have great hope. We know times of doubt come, so strengthen our faith, dispel our doubts, and help us in all of that, not to, not to pursue some heady knowledge, some heady theology, but let us run to the person and the work of Jesus. And now may, may that trust be so evident as we look forward. This, this world is not our home. We, we have retirement plans. We, we, we make all these kind of um, preparations, and we have goals, we have bucket lists, and none of that matters to the great hope we have. We've already seen the end of the story. Help us to walk in, in conviction of that. Strengthen our faith as we meet each week. Help us to never be isolated Christians, but to grow as you've intended as a body. And so we look forward to our worship service now. May it be a great time of renewal, of fellowship, a reminder of our sins, a reminder of our forgiveness in Christ. And may we, may we take that time uh, Sunday afternoons or later in the week to meet one-on-one or in our community groups and to be encouraging one another day as long as the day is here. Help us to use that time and our energy and our gifts in a way that pleases you. And we pray that you would be faithful to the end. You would, you would continue in us the work that you have begun. And we thank you all in Jesus' name. Amen.